Stay hungry, stay foolish. Have you ever felt like you're talking, but nobody is listening? Wouldn't it be nice to know how to speak so that people listen and how to listen so that people feel heard? Our guest today is a leading sound expert and demonstrates via interviews with world-class speakers, professional performers and CEOs on top of their fields. The secret lies in developing simple habits that can transform our communication skills, the quality of our relationships and our impact in the world. His book explores how sound affects us all, how to make it work for you and improve your well-being, effectiveness and happiness, why listening matters, how listening and speaking affect one another, the seven deadly sins of speaking and listening and how to avoid them, the four cornerstones of powerful speaking and listening, how to listen and why we don't, our listening filters and how to use them, saying what you mean, how to plan and structure content so you always hit the bullseye. We welcome leading sound expert and author of How to Be Heard, Secrets for Powerful Speaking and Listening, Julian Treasure. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Aidan. Great pleasure to be here. It's great to have you on the show, Julian. And you rightly call out, if children left school unable to read or write, it would be considered a travesty. Yet most of us leave school never having truly learned how to communicate at all. That's so true, Aidan. We teach reading and writing religiously. We test them and so forth. It's a scandal if children leave school unable to read or write. But we do not teach speaking hardly at all. A little bit in American schools, they teach public speaking, but less so in the UK. And we barely touch listening. There's no way to test it in schools at the moment. And it's not really taught. So these two primal skills, you know, they've been around a lot longer than reading and writing. Reading and writing, what, 6,000 years old, maybe? Speaking and listening, probably 150,000 years we've been using complex language. It's a much more basic skill, and yet we ignore it in our education system, which to me is bizarre. I thought this was really interesting. You mentioned there about the different systems, that writing is relatively new, and that that has become the de facto source of most of our information, either watching recorded information or reading it, versus our brain has adapted to storytelling, to listening, but yet we don't do much of that. Yes, if you think about most of the modern communication channels that we've developed over the last, say, 40 years since technology has been moving so fast, they deploy fingers and eyes, almost exclusively screen-based, text-based, so email, instant messaging, text, and so forth. And they've really come up on the rails and, and taken the lead. Most people now are more prone to communicate that way. And it, even when they're sitting next to somebody, I mean, there's um, recent research I just saw, saw about open plan offices, which we can talk about maybe at some point. Uh, well, I did a, a radio show for BBC Radio 4 about called The Curse of Open Plan, about open plan offices and how they affect people. Recent research shows that people in open plan are not communicating more freely. What they're doing is using more email because they're worried about being overheard. So it's actually repressing uh, spoken communication, which is completely counterintuitive, but that's the kind of effect. And it, because we've got these written forms, which are a bit safer, you know, would you rather ask somebody out with a text or face-to-face? -face? Would you rather say you want to leave somebody with a text or face-to-face? -face? You know, there's a lot <laughs> of that going on of arm's length. And um, obviously, there are many benefits of 
the modern text-based communications, asynchronous, you know, you can publish it, you can disseminate it to more than one person at a time and so forth. Nevertheless, I think we have lost contact with the most basic and powerful way in which we can communicate. And a lot of people really don't know how to use their voice effectively, how to structure content effectively, or even more importantly, in my opinion, how to listen to other people consciously and effectively. Yeah, and I'd love to focus on the listening in a little while, but I really loved it, even about the title of the book, is it's how to be heard. So this challenge we have in life that we think sometimes message sent equals message received, and you talk about this, that we prioritize sending a message over receiving it, which is a very dangerous mistake in communication. Yes, it's quite interesting that I've done five TED Talks. One of them is on conscious listening, the third one I did, and one of them is on powerful speaking, the fifth one. And the powerful speaking talk has been seen by something like 10 times as many people as the conscious listening talk, which says something about our priorities. Now, speaking is incredibly important, but I do think it's going to be important and great that we're going to talk about listening later on. My basic thesis, I mean, what's at the core of my book is actually that speaking and listening are in a circular relationship. So a lot of people would think it's linear. I speak, you listen. And there's this assumption that, you know, the other end of the conversation is being handled. But unfortunately, that's so often not the case. There are so many distractions. So the way I speak affects the way you listen. And the way you listen affects the way I speak. And that circle is going on all the time dynamically in a context which, unfortunately, again, is very often badly designed spaces with poor acoustics, lots of noise, lots of things getting in the way. So our communication actually, a lot of the time, is incredibly suboptimal. It's not great speaking into very distracted listening in a hostile environment, and that doesn't work very well. Yeah, and I love what you say that conscious listening itself creates our understanding. So in this world of the knowledge economy, where we're using our brains more than ever, or we should be certainly in the world of the knowledge economy, listening is absolutely vital to take in that message because it creates our understanding of a complex challenge for a company or disruptive innovation that's facing a company. So understanding through conscious listening becomes a vital skill. There is so much power in listening. It creates, as you say, understanding between people. And I think we need a bit of that in the world today. You know, when you look at the politics of uh, shouting that's going on, politicians go off and have talks. I think it would be a far better world if they went off and had listens instead. <laughs> it's always about talking. Listening creates intimacy between people at home, you know, in relationship. You need to listen to people in order to understand them and create that bond. If you want to persuade and inspire people, the best way is to listen and understand them. And then you can speak accurately into their listening. We'll talk about that later, maybe. It's good for your health to listen because there are many sounds around you that are actually bad for you. And we've gone so unconscious in our relationship with sound generally. A lot of the time we're being actually harmed by sound around us and we're just not listening to it. We're not conscious of it. And of course, listening is how you learn. You know, the two most dangerous words in the English language probably are I know. If you know everything, you learn nothing. And listening to other people in a kind of humble and curious way is an incredible way of, of learning something every single day. 
Yeah, and you mentioned there about the health outcomes because you've distilled the being heard process down over many, many years to three core outcomes, happiness, effectiveness, and well-being. It would be great to explore those three, Julian. These three outcomes are the outcomes of spoken communication, of being heard and of speaking well. So happiness is very affected by what the sound is around you, for example. Nature sound has been researched to be very good for people, but a bit of birdsong, a bit of light water, that kind of sound is absolutely proven to be good for your health in lots of ways. Birdsong has been shown to improve recovery from stroke and cancer, for example. Um, music can do that too, the right kind of music. So you can improve your health by creating a good environment for yourself. You can improve your health by being able to express yourself well as well, because it's stressful if you're not being heard. You know, you end up with lots of stress hormones in your body and with anxiety and so forth. And long term, these things are incredibly damaging. Noise itself is a huge social issue. I mean, there are 8 million people in Europe who are having their sleep wrecked night after night by traffic noise that's way above the World Health Organization recommended maximum. And when you think of the long-term effects of sleep deprivation, I mean, that is a huge social cost. It's in the billions of euros a year. WHO now say that noise is second only to air pollution as a killer. I mean, it kills people, chronic noise exposure. And as a reducer of happy and effective life, of healthy life, a thing called disability-adjusted life years or dailies, there's a million of those being wrecked, removed every year in Europe. So a million less happy, healthy years of living every year because of noise. So happiness, health, and effectiveness hugely, especially in the work environment. I mean, we just touched on it, but the research shows that in open plan offices, people who are trying to do knowledge work to concentrate are up to one third as productive as people in a quiet space. In other words, it's very easy to lose two thirds of your productivity, of your effectiveness, in an environment where you're being distracted. And the most distracting sound of all are the people's conversation, closely followed by alarms like ringing phones and so forth, which are designed to distract you after all. So it's not a surprise that they do. So the open plan office, it can be good for collaboration, although as I said at the beginning, the research is starting to undermine even that thesis. It certainly is not good for concentration or contemplation. And it can also be quite damaging to communication. Uh, you can have an open plan office that's too quiet. You know, I take a phone call with 20 people. It's dead quiet. How many people am I putting off with my conversation? 20. They're all listening to me. We have no earlids. You can't block out the sound. You're programmed to decode language. It's a very distracting thing. I mean, I've been into the BBC for many times in a new broadcasting house in Portland Place. And the ground floor, the kind of basement there where everybody sits with a huge atrium above them, it's all open plan and it drives them nuts because these are journalists who are trying to write and think and everything around them is people's conversations. And it's extremely difficult to work in that kind of environment. We have to look at all three of the outcomes and say, is this important? You know, how important is happiness? How important is our effectiveness? How important is our well-being? And then we can design environments which are appropriate for people to work in, particularly work environments. But I mean, I could go on about 
modern built environments, think of hospitals. What noise is in hospitals? It's hisses, beeps, alarm sounds, all sorts of terrible sounds which are designed to be alerting and which get in the way of sleep and sleep is how we heal. So hospital sound at the moment is a disaster. Noise levels are 12 times the WHO recommended maximum by day, 12 times as loud. So it's not surprising that we are having trouble getting people out of beds and getting people through hospitals that we don't let them get well because the noise levels are so severe. Education, there are millions of children leaving school every year simply having not heard their education because the acoustics in schoolrooms are so appalling. So the teachers have to shout over the top of group work in a noise of 65 decibels or more, which is not damaging to the ears. You know, 85 decibels, you have to provide hearing protection. Uh, 65, no, but it's damaging to your long-term health. And the research is now showing that many teachers are probably shortening their lives by working in that kind of noise day after day. Not to mention the children can't hear what the teacher is saying, especially those at the back. And who sits at the back? It's the naughty kids. So we've got an education system where we're, it's like watering a garden and just missing the flowers. It's such a waste to be putting all that effort into what's being sent, you know, the curriculum, the, the skills of the teachers and so forth. They're never thinking, is it being received? We need to prepare the soil and make sure that, you know, we keep the garden neat and tidy and we're watering the right places. So there are so many issues with the built environment which are affecting outcomes than those three key outcomes, happiness, effectiveness, and well-being. If we just start listening to the world around us and designing, I mean, anybody who's a CEO or running a business, think about the environment your people are in. Is well-being important to you? In, in that case, start thinking about the building blocks of a space in good sound, which are acoustics, good acoustics. Get an acoustician to come and help you. There are wonderful products now that you can suspend from ceiling. I mean, you know, the, the modern fashion is all hard surfaces in architecture. It's all steel and concrete and glass and so forth. And that's resonant. It, the noise just bounces back into the room and you end up with long reverberation times and cacophony and, and ill health and lack of performance and unhappy people. So acoustics, very important. Controlling noise levels. Obviously, you can't control the noise level of people talking, but you can ameliorate that with acoustics and you can make sure that you have different spaces, some spaces for collaboration and some noisy social spaces, other quiet working spaces or contemplation spaces, and then encourage people to move around. It's called activity-based working. And it's extremely powerful. If it's done well, the results are extraordinary. Have a look at the Leesman Index, if you don't believe me, which is a fantastic survey of work environments and whether they're good or bad and how important they are. And that's L-E-E-S-M-A-N, if, if anybody wants to look that up. We need to think carefully, acoustics, noise, sound system. If you're going to put sound into a space, make sure it's good enough and that the sound system can deal with it. And then the content. Most offices, the most they'll do is put in some filtered noise to damp down um, other people's conversation. It's called masking sound. It's not very good for you, uh, and it's not wildly effective either. Uh, there's a lot of snake oil out there. We're just getting into that market right now at the sound agency and starting to produce uh, biophilic sound, that is nature sound, which is good for people and which will help to improve privacy as well, so it'll improve well-being and effectiveness in one swoop. So 
I think there is so much work to do in these environments. Listening underpins everything. It's very difficult to be heard when the environment is just hostile and inappropriate and, and really working against you. You wouldn't want to propose marriage in a noisy Starbucks, probably. Uh, you know. So I think one of the big messages in the book is to think about the environment. If you're going to have an important conversation, try to design the environment, choose a place where the environment is going to be positive and supportive and nurturing to that conversation. And that takes listening was really interesting when you talked about the environment and the collaborative spaces these open spaces we're seeing a trend of people working remotely so working from home and i often ask people who do that who work at home maybe on a monday and a friday why and they go to get deep work done so when they have to write a report or they have to do deep work where they have to be fully engaged mentally the workplace doesn't facilitate that. It doesn't help it because people keep interrupting them and they just cannot get to the point of deep work that they are extremely productive in. Unfortunately, most of the driver for open plan, which has become a kind of de facto standard across the world, most of the driver for it is economic. It's about cramming more people in to a given space. So people are conflating cost saving with productivity. They're not the same thing. And when you ram those two things together, what you actually get is misery. You get people rammed in close together, unable to concentrate, very stressed. Uh, you get higher absenteeism, you get greater sick leave, you get more staff turnover, you get dispirited workforce, uh, less productivity. It's, it is a serious issue. Uh, only now are we starting to see the scale of that, as with many things, you know, I mean, brutalism in architecture happened, and it was years before people realized these buildings are hideous. <laughs> but by that time, they'd been built. Uh, in the same way, we're now starting to realize there's probably 6 billion square feet of office space in the world. That is millions of people who are having their lives blighted in this way. And now I'm not saying everybody should be in little boxes like they were. We need varied office space. We need to be intelligent about the design and think about the outcomes before we just open plan the whole world. So uh, again, sound, you know, I, I, my fourth TED talk was called Designing with the Ears. And it's, it's all about this topic of thinking carefully about the spaces we're making so that we're, we're creating spaces that sound as good as they look. It's not enough to have something that looks terrific and sounds awful. It's actually not fit for purpose, dysfunctional. So listening, again, underpins all of that. And as an organization, by the way, and I know the audience for this is largely organizational leaders. Uh, it's very interesting to look at listening with organizations. Organizations are terrible at listening, much, much better at outbound communication. And if you talk about organizational communication, you don't think about listening at all. You think about PR, advertising, social media, you know, it's all outbound, 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 telephone calls, whatever it may be. Very little of it is about inbound communication listening to the market, listening to your customers, listening to your staff in particular. Um, and if you, if you, as you said earlier, if you do listen to the people in the organization, it's possible to gain all sorts of enormous benefits. Um, I mean, just, just huge benefits. Uh, I did a, an interview in my book with Hiram Smith, who, who ran the Stephen Covey organization, you know, uh, you know, the seven habits of effective people and so forth. And, um, he was saying that uh, one time they, they had a suggestion from somebody on their production line, uh, which turned into a $30 million 
saving. Now, if they hadn't listened to that little idea from a guy who was working on a machine, that was $30 million disappeared. Uh, so it's incredibly important to encourage innovation from everybody in an organization, and you do that by listening to them. But uh, the Organizational Listening Project, which did a huge piece of research on this some years ago, found that most organizations hardly listen at all to anybody. They're far more about outbound, which you know goes back to the same thing about the TED Talks I said earlier, You know, the, the speaking one, 10 times as many views as the listening one. We're much more concerned with outbound, with publishing our stuff, producing things in the world by active intervention than we are with the much more passive and subtle skill of listening. You mentioned there about the organization. It's much easier for innovation to thrive if the organization listens to its people. But when I read that, I thought also, when you point the finger, there's three pointing back at yourself in that your book does a brilliant job of teaching me how to make sure my message is received and how best to do that. And like you talked about that loop of how I speak and how I listen interacts with the other person. So it teaches them how to treat me effectively, but also how to receive my message. Because oftentimes, many, many innovations and many great ideas fail because the person cannot articulate them well. Mm. And I thought this was a really important skill. And it's one of the reasons I have you on the show. I think lots of people struggle with selling their ideas within the organization. And that causes stress, distress. They leave the company and they blame the company. But oftentimes, they themselves lack the skill. The human voice is an amazing instrument. It's an extraordinary instrument. And yet, we are expected to pick it up and just learn how to play it with nobody telling us what to do or how to do it. Uh, we don't spend any time thinking about it very much. And voices vary. So I talk about the vocal toolbox. I mean, there's, there are two things here about being heard. There's, there's content and there's delivery. It was quite interesting. I interviewed Chris Anderson for the book. Chris is TED's leader, curator. He calls himself the curator of TED. And I asked him this question, which is more important, content or delivery? And obviously he said both, but if he had to choose, it would be content. Because you can get by listening to boring delivery if what the person is saying is really earth-shattering and very important. I mean, it's much better if they can deliver it well, but if the content is there, you can just about stay with them. On the other hand, if somebody is brilliantly delivering absolute nonsense or something totally superficial, as Chris said, it's just annoying because you've got all this kind of surface sheen and veneer, and yet there's nothing there to get your teeth into. And it's you, you're just thinking, that's frustrating. Why don't you say something important? So they are both important. Um, and perhaps we could talk about the delivery side first, because it is it tends to be uh, that the bit that most people have never thought about, the vocal toolbox. Um, I distinguish it. There's a lot of things, actually. Everybody listening to this, you've all got a vocal toolbox. And if you open that vocal toolbox and have a rummage around, there are all sorts of tools in there, which are amazing things to explore. They're things that you can work on. They're things that you can improve. They're things where you can get feedback yourself or work with other people to give you better control of these things. And if you get them right, you can transform the power of your speaking without any doubt at all. I mean, let's just run through them very quickly and I'll tell you what they are and how important they are. First of all, in the vocal toolbox, posture. 
posture is incredibly important. I'm talking to you now sitting in a chair at a desk. If I lean my head forward, you can hear what's happened. I've been putting pressure on my vocal cords. And we speak like this so much of the time, sitting slumped over a desk on the phone with our head leaning forward, vocal cords stretched. On the other hand, if I put my head right back, you can hear my vocal cords being compressed. So having your head vertically above your shoulders and giving your vocal cords the best chance to function is very important. And also, when you're standing in front of people, if you're looking relaxed, I, mean, I always like to imagine a string attached to the top of my head and everything's just hanging from that string. You know, your shoulders are loosened back and down. Everything's stacked vertically. Your feet are comfortably facing the people you're talking to. And, you know, you, you look strong, confident and relaxed, rooted. That is a very important start to being heard. Then you've got breath. Your voice is just breath, after all. So learning how to breathe is really useful. Most people never think about breathing. We breathe like little birds, you know, just to the top of our lungs most of the day. I wonder, you know, listening to this, when's the last time you took a really big, deep breath? Try it now. Sit back in your chair or stand up and just put your arms in the air. That's it. Have a huge, deep breath. And then as you let the arms down, sigh out. It's one of my vocal warm-up exercises. And it's great. It moves your ribs. Suddenly, you've got some air in your lungs. You've oxygenated your whole system. Uh, if you get tired, that's a really good thing to do as well. So learning some breathing exercises, doing breathing every day, getting larger lung capacity, these are all very, very good things for you in general, also very good for your breath. Then you've got register and pitch and prosody, which or prosody, those, those three are quite close together, but not the same. There are four registers of the human voice going from whistle register, which I can't do at all. Mariah Carey might be able to, but I can't. Um, falsetto up here, this, this strange thing we can do, you know, like multi, Monty Python. He's a very naughty boy. It's not the most powerful way to speak. There are quite a lot of people who live in that area. It's not to be recommended. It's very good for singing. There are, you know, Chris Martin of Coldplay, lots of people sing in falsetto up there, but not great for projecting. The, the one we use most of the time is the modal register, which is everywhere from your, your nose up here into your throat, where I'm speaking from now, and then right down into your chest, which is where I'm speaking from now. And you can hear the difference. Now, of course, your voice all actually comes from your vocal cords in your throat. But if you think about where you're resonating, it is absolutely possible to resonate from your chest. And I strongly recommend that. If you practice that, you can feel your chest resonating. Then your voice is going to be deeper and more powerful. And you will be much more able to project and to be heard. It's also true if we just fold in pitch here where you can change the import of what you're saying with just pitch, like, where did he leave my keys? Where did you leave my keys? Same pace, completely different emotional impact. We vote for politicians with deeper voices because we, we associate depth with size and importance, like an elephant is a bit more important than a mouse to us. It's danger. It's just, it's, it's genetic, very, very old stuff, big things, deep voices, watch out. So we tend to think that Deeper means more significant, and that's why uh, that uh, statistic about politicians is there. Margaret Thatcher had her voice lowered by two tones with 
voice coaches uh, because she felt she wasn't being taken seriously enough in the Houses of Parliament. So she went down. And a lot of people uh, who actors and so forth explore the lower end of their voice in order to have more power. There is another register called Vocal Fry. It's the fourth register. And please try to avoid this. It's becoming unbelievably fashionable and very sadly so. It sounds sounds like this. You know, it's a very croaky way to speak. Yeah, we're really, really excited. Lazy way to speak. Yeah, I'm really excited about this, you know. Um, it's not very good for your voice to speak that way, and it certainly isn't very powerful. It's unfortunately devolved from West Coast America, uh, Valley Speak, and so forth. A lot of females use it, but a lot of males use it as well now. I do advise, however fashionable you want to be, I do advise you to avoid that. Anybody listening to this, try and be in the power of your true voice. The voice is a wonderful instrument, and it's a shame to devalue it like that. That's a little bit about register, pitch, prosody, uh, as I, I like to say, or prosody, some people say. The, the sing-song of speech, incredibly important. Without prosody, you're speaking on one note, and it's not terribly interesting to do that. Even if I vary my pace a great deal, uh, you're going to lose contact with me after a while because one note is really extremely boring. And it's called monotony for a reason, monotone. It's boring. So practice. If you happen to have one of those voices, one of those voices that's a little bit boring, that maybe has the same reflection all the time and you speak in the same way, if you're making repetitive patterns like that, you will tend to send people to sleep. So prosody, very, very important. It's culturally significant and you have to be sensitive if you're working across different cultures to different prosodies. I mean, I've done talks in Finland, for example, and Scandinavian prosody is very Prosody is very um, relaxed and and kind of minimalist, really. You know, there was talk like this. I mean, yes, we're very excited about <laughs> this project. And yeah, yeah, exactly. Whereas, you know, if you're talking to an Italian, it's all oh, like, talk an amazing amount of, you know, so it, it is culturally sensitive and it's worth adjusting and understanding that. I mean, I did a talk in, in Helsinki in the wonderful concert hall there. And there was a ripple of applause at the end, you know, and I thought, oh, no, I bombed. It was hardly anything. And then people were coming up to me afterwards saying, that was the best talk we have had for several years. Said, oh, okay, <laughs> thank you very much. I understand now. Very quiet country, very reserved and so forth. So it, it is important to be culturally sensitive and to send in the right way that people can hear what you're saying and not be offended or disengaged. So uh, that's a little bit about the tone. And pace. Uh, when you're giving a talk, when you're in public or even in front of a few people and you're presenting, let's say, I think many people listening to this probably do presentations, keep it varying. You can really play with pace a great deal. If it's the same all the way through, again, you're back to monotony. You need highs and lows. You need peaks and valleys. You need light and shade in order to keep people interested. And you can do incredible things with pace, right down to lots of silence. It's not necessary to fill spaces up with ums and ers, and you know what I means, and other verbal tics. You can pause to think. Now, I won't do that very much here, because when you're talking about radio, which is effectively the medium we're in, podcasting, um, that's called dead air, and it's disturbing to people because they think, um, have I lost the signal? My system's gone off. What's happened? 
if you're on stage and people can see you, they know that that's not the case. And I demonstrate this when I give talks around the world. You can just stop. You haven't lost it. I know we're still here, but I can do that for, you know, getting on for 30 seconds. I can stand there and the audience just sit there smiling, quite happy. If you've lost your thread, it's quite okay to stop and just say, just one moment, ladies and gentlemen. And you can think, ah, you know, you can even say, I've, I've completely forgotten what I was going to say next. Give me a moment. People will be with you. I've seen people on the TED stage lose it, you know, using memory, which is a very dangerous, in my opinion, for <laughs> it is for me anyway, a very dangerous way to deliver a talk. When if you've got a brilliant memory, fantastic. I've seen some great talks that way. Alan de Botton, brilliant. Um, however, Ken Robinson. However, uh, I use slides because I like to know what I'm doing and see what's coming next and, you know, remember the flow and so forth. Um, but I've seen people lose it on the TED stage and just stop. And the audience, what happens after about 15 seconds of the person obviously getting it going bright red and sweating and so forth, the audience start applauding. So they're with you most of the time. I mean, this isn't stand up comedy. You're not going to get heckled. It's okay in any conversation to take a moment. And gabbling is a really big common error in speaking, especially because it indicates weakness as well. Trying to get words out so quickly because you think the other person's not going to pay attention to you and they're, they're too important. And then, you know, um, at the end, and then you get confused and it all goes, oh, it's all sort of, ah, which isn't going to go down tremendously well. Uh, speaking slowly and in power is, is actually, it's an indication of confidence. And people tend to listen more when you're doing that. So uh, that's something that perhaps people could think about. And then there's a couple of other things. There's timbre, which is the texture of your voice. And if, if you happen to have a voice which is not ideal for timbre, I mean, people tend to like voices you describe in the same way as you describe a hot chocolate. That is rich, dark, warm, smooth, sweet, you know, any of those words. If that's not you at the moment, if you're a bit squeaky or thin or high or scratchy or anything like that, my advice is go and work with a vocal coach. Now you can just Google vocal coach or drama coach or singing coach or voice coach, and you'll find a whole bunch of them, I'm sure, in your local area, and just make an appointment with a few of them and uh, see which one you know you have good chemistry with, and then do some work. And they can transform timbre, projection, uh, your, you know, where you're speaking from, your resonance, and so forth, and really make a big difference. If you use your voice professionally, I do suggest you go and do some work with a professional. It makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, why would you not? Finally, there's volume, which is also important. I have worked with people in my workshops over the years, and I say, okay, now let me hear your loudest shout. And they go, this is my loudest shout. I mean, it is incredible how repressed or how narrow the bandwidth of volume for some people their bandwidth is so restricted and they don't understand that they actually have a great deal more power. With all of these things, with breath, with pitch, with pace, with volume, my recommendation to anybody listening to this is practice really extravagant expansion. Work on it so that, you know, you can really give the, the prosody an enormous amount so that when you come to be natural in front of people, you've just pushed it a little bit. You know, you, you can, it's like doing exercises, you know, lift, listening, lifting heavy weights or anything like that. It's not what you do in real life. 
you do it in order to be stronger in whatever you are doing in real life. And it's the same with this stuff. So with volume, I recommend find a quiet place when you're not going to disturb people and go from a whisper to, I won't do it again, my microphone won't like it, but to an enormous shout, you know, the loudest shout you can do, extend your range, explore your range, explore the limits of this incredible voice that we all have. You know, we're not all Pavarotti, but we can all really push to the limits of our voice. And it's an amazing thing. So that's a little bit about the vocal toolbox. Just thinking about it is the first step in the battle. You know, understanding that you can start to make changes here. If people aren't listening, then speak better. And you can do that uh, quite easily. You reveal also some of the habits that rob power from speaking and listening and some of the forces in the modern world that are undermining our communication skills. Here you mention what you call the four leeches. Yes, the four leeches all come from the same place. This is the dark side of communication. And where does the dark side come from in Star Wars? Fear. And fear is behind the four leeches all the time. The leeches I talk about in the book, two of them are very, very common. I mean, I'll deal with the two minor ones first. People-pleasing, I'm sure that since most of this audience is leaders of organization or organizations, there's not a huge amount of people pleasing going on. That's saying no when you mean yes, saying yes when you mean no, you know, um, not standing up for yourself, wanting to please the people around you so much that you're saying things that aren't authentic. Fixing, that is also quite prevalent, which is it's not okay for people to be upset. Don't cry, don't be upset. And that does tend to repress people's necessary emotional reactions sometimes. I'm only saying these things, if they become habitual, if they become a kind of a place you inhabit, then they can be problems with your communication. They're holes in the bucket. They make it harder for people to listen to you. The big two of the four leeches are both things that are very common. And everybody listening to this, I'm not saying you do it, but you might know somebody awfully well who does do it. First one looking good. We all like looking good. It's just common to be, you know, wanting to be respected, wanting to be liked, wanting to be revered, especially if you're in a leadership role, it becomes a bit of a drug, you know, wanting to look good. However, looking good does tend to create some habits which make communication with other people very diff difficult and frustrating. I'll give you a couple of examples. What I call speech writing, which is not listening to the other person it's while this noise is going on in front of me, it's me composing my next brilliant piece of witty dialogue. So I'm thinking about what I'm going to say, and it tends to come out in the, anyway, non sequitur. When somebody's talking, you just go, anyway, never mind what you were saying, this is now, this is important because <laughs> I'm talking. It's extremely arrogant, and it seriously pisses people off, unfortunately. Um, it's a great, if you, if you find yourself doing that, I mean, it's demoralizing, humiliating for the people who are trying to talk to you. Just look inside and say, am I doing this? Do I do this on a regular basis? Try a little exercise, which is trust that your voice will actually find the right response. You don't need to write it, edit it, prepare it, you know, um, and, and authorize it before it's delivered. The script does not need to be there. You know what to say. You will know what to say. And then there's a lovely emptiness in listening. You can actually listen and pay attention. And indeed, the conversation will go much better generally because you're responding properly to what somebody has said. So speech writing is not a great thing to be doing as a leader. 
Competitive speaking is another issue which tends to come out of looking good. That's where I say, oh, I'm going to Greece on holiday this year. And you say, oh, I've been to Greece six times. And I go, oh, okay. That's my little joy killed. Yeah. <laughs> People who have to trump, I mean, I use that word in the loosest possible sense. People who have to trump yeah. uh, what somebody else has said to be bigger, better. I'm sure nobody listening to this has ever claimed to have read a book they've never read. Or, you know, Solzhenitsyn, yes, he's awfully good, isn't he? We all do it a little bit. It's a question, again, of degree and whether it becomes self-aggrandizement. The same thing with embellishment. It's a very good exercise, and I've just done it myself, to avoid hyperbole for a day, to remove the veries. And I, I get quite annoyed about the language inflation that goes on. It's not any longer. It's not enough to be excited. You now have to be super excited, don't you? And mm -hmm. uh, I, I guess maybe in a year or two, we might have to be super, super excited because super excited isn't enough anymore. So it's unfortunate that we've got this, we have this inflation going on. Nevertheless, exaggeration does become a habit. I've been waiting ages for you. Ages? Really? Well, actually, it was eight minutes. So it's a really good exercise just for a day or even for an hour to say exactly what you mean. Remove the hyperbole mm -hmm. and try to be accurate in your speaking. Uh, it, it is, I can tell you it's difficult, especially when people around you are doing it. I mean, I, I berate Americans a lot for the use of the word awesome, for example. You know, if a pizza is awesome, what's a sunset? They've lost the word. It doesn't have any meaning anymore. That's important. And then the other big leech is being right. Uh, if there's one thing we like more than looking good, it's being right. And the easiest way to be right is to make somebody else wrong. And we have this cycle going on with our media and with politics. You know, we're all getting addicted to outrage to you know condemning other people somebody's to blame somebody must be to blame somebody needs to be punished for this awful thing and that makes me right makes me writer that tends to give rise to some again pretty destructive habits for example interrupting now that tends to be something leaders do a fair bit and if you're an interrupter i have a great exercise for you it's not counting to 10 or anything like that it's simpler Take a deep breath before you speak. Get into the habit of doing that. And as you take the deep breath, you might just realize the other person's still talking, which they often are. And the need, the tendency to interrupt, especially if people have a slower pace or they, they're struggling to get to the point or whatever, there is this enormous tendency, but it's becoming more and more common in modern life. You know, if you listen to radio interviews, politicians get probably 20 seconds before they get interrupted. And now they've learned that they have to get their sound bites in. So we trivialize debate, interchange, discussion. When you're interrupting each other all the time, the result is dumbed down conversation effectively, where you have to pack everything into such a short space of time. You don't have time for the subtlety or the explanations. That's very true, I think, in modern society. So looking good, being right, people-pleasing, fixing, those are the four leeches. Reading the book was such valuable time spent because it makes you aware of these things that we do. And often it's not conscious. So, for example, even there you talked about speaking in Finland. I also spoke in Finland and I nearly responded only for I had read the book to go, oh yeah, I spoke there too. And I think the source of the problem goes back to school 
I even remember, Julie, you probably remember this, when people do exams and they ask you, how did you get on that exam? Just waiting for you to ask them because they've done really well and they're like, oh, absolutely aced it. And they're only asking you to be able to tell you their information. And when you, and that's the source of it. And if we could yeah. fix that, I mean, your book does a great job to make us exactly. aware of it for those people who are interested in it. But if we could fix it at source, can you imagine how more open discourse would be it'd be like the greek you know agora of the yeah. old days where people actually have proper critical conversations where they allow the other people to interject and give them the time to build their argument definitely well in fact pythagoras it is said used to for his first year students uh, who were called i think akousmatoi he used to erect a screen so the teacher was invisible to the students because he considered that seeing the teacher was a distraction you needed to listen. And if you didn't have the visual cues, you had to listen really carefully, which of course is true of, of this medium that we're in right now also. So I think there was a lot of wisdom back then. There was a lot of formality, which allowed people to express themselves correctly. The pace of life has got faster and faster and faster. And we're now so used to multiple inputs and being distracted with lots of things that it become almost trivial to interrupt somebody to ignore them get on with something else yeah i am listening to you no you're sending a text that is not listening so it's a very important thing and perhaps we could talk about one of the exercises in the book which can help in conversation to deal with some of those leeches it's one of my favorite exercises there's quite a lot of exercises throughout the book but this one has had good press from people who've used it it's called rasa which is the Sanskrit word for juice, R-A-S-A, but it's an acronym. I love acronyms because I've got terrible memory. So this one stands for Receive, Appreciate, Summarize, Ask. I love and that. It's a very good cycle to be in, in a conversation. So receive means listening. You know, the American author Scott Peck said, you cannot truly listen to another human being and do anything else at the same time. And I think he's absolutely right. So when we're listening, we can give this gift to somebody of total attention. I wonder when the last time anybody listening to this gave that gift uh, to one of their family or somebody at work. I wonder when the last time is that you did that. Uh, we tend to listen in a sort of faux listening, distracted listening, partial listening way most of the time. So the R is receive. Look at the person, keep eye contact, be pointing at them with your whole body. If you're sitting down, leaning forward, all of these are indications that I am listening to you. The A is appreciate little noises, and if you're with them physically, little movements, which oil the conversation. Mm, oh, really? Nods, eyes, raised eyebrows, smiles, you know, bobbing of the head, uh, mirroring of their posture. These kind of things really help. The S is the word so, which is sadly becoming very abused these days. Uh, it, it means thus, therefore. Uh, and I get very annoyed when you know, conversations go, what's your name? So I'm John. What, you're John because I just asked you? I didn't know. Well, I don't see the logical flow there. Uh, there are even TED Talks where the person walks on stage and the first word they say is so. Well, so is a very, very powerful word. You can sum up. You can close doors in the corridor of a conversation. So what I just heard you say is this, or so what you're saying is this, is that right? Yes. Okay. Door closed behind you. Now we can move on or in a meeting. So we've all agreed that now we can move on to this. If you don't have a so person in a meeting, it can be a very long meeting going round and round. 
what do they say about meetings? They're places where you take minutes and waste hours. So yeah, meetings can be very destructive if so is not deployed. And then the A is ask. Ask questions throughout and at the end. Open questions, clean questions without agendas are very powerful. So open questions start with why, what, how, when, who, those kind of words, not yes, no answers. Uh, and uh, the clean questions don't have an agenda behind them. I'm very inter interested in clean language. Uh, the clean question would be, what did you have for breakfast? The agenda question would be, did you have the eggs or the fruit for breakfast? So, you know, when you're steering somebody or leading them, sometimes you want to do that. If you're doing it consciously, that can be very useful. If you really want to understand what somebody's saying, open, clean questions are very good. So RASA, it's a very powerful way to improve communication flow with anybody. Another great one you talk about in the book is HARA. I'd love if you share that with our audience as well, Julian. I talk about the four C's of conscious communication, which are commitment, consciousness, compassion, and curiosity. Curiosity is crucial. HARA, another useful acronym, which really helps to uh, engage in communication. Um, the H, it's H-A-R-A-H. -H. The first H is for humility. Now, that's not something that many leaders find easy. Uh, it, it is possible to be a humble, uh, listening leader, to be introverted in the leader, you know, you know, Gandhi and so forth, and have a look at Susan Cain's wonderful TED Talk if you're an introvert and you want to lead people. Introverts have got wonderful skills and can make great leaders. Um, it tends to be the case that when you are used to leading people and telling people what to do and driving things, you, you can just sometimes lose contact with humility, and it's a very important thing. Uh, humility allows you to learn, allows you to be surprised and delighted to, to, um, not to have to know everything, not to be right all the time. Oh, really? I thought this. Thank you. The A is for awareness, which is to say you're doing something. You're doing a thing. Conscious listening is doing a thing. It's a skill. Your listening is unlike anybody else's. It's as unique as your iris or your fingerprint because you listen through a set of filters. And if you are aware that you're actually doing a thing, it's not hearing. You hear everything. When you're listening, you select certain things to pay attention to and you make them mean something. Now, that's an active process. It's a mental process and it creates your reality. So becoming aware that you're doing it allows you actually to change your reality, which is very powerful. The R is for respect. Uh, wishing people well is a really good way to be in a conversation. You know, not judging books by covers. I've had so many conversations over the years where I've thought, this is not very interesting. And then, wow. I've just learned some amazing stuff from this person when I was arrogantly thinking that that wasn't going to be worth a conversation. The second day is attention. Time is a problem these days, and giving people full attention is absolutely marvelous and uh, really does change your the whole dynamic of your relationship with them. It's paying them respect. It's, it's a gracious way to be. And it makes people feel wanted and heard and understood and valued in an organization. And then the final H is humor. I think it's a big mistake to take oneself too seriously. Uh, humor is a wonderful way to listen and to speak, especially when there's things we disagree with and we can, you know, the, the, the whole way of being disapproving and supercilious and above and annoyed, that's not a very productive way to be with people. 
Barack Obama said, I love listening to people, especially when I disagree with them. And that's a really powerful way to be in life. But I also learned when there's humor present, or for example, a lecturer or a speaker intertwines humor into their talk, you learn better. It actually opens you up to actually receive the information better. And, and I always have this personal mantra where I don't take myself seriously, but I take what I do extremely seriously. Definitely. I wouldn't advise going on stage to give a talk and cracking jokes if that's not your thing. You can be humorous and light and self-deprecating and make fun of a situation. Uh, you can do all of that without having to you know, hit the one-liners and, and be a stand-up comedian. Whatever's natural to you. We've only got a few minutes left, I think, but I'd like just to mention the four foundations of powerful speaking, which are hail. Honesty is the H. So that is being straight and clear, just saying what you mean. The A is authenticity, which is what brought me onto this, being yourself. Uh, you don't have to be somebody else in order to be successful. You can be truly yourself and just have faith that that's going to work. The I is integrity, which is being your word. If you say it, do it. If people learn that about you, your words have power. On the other hand, if they learn that you say things and they don't happen, your words just evaporate like a puddle in the sun. The L of hail is love, which again, I'm not talking about romantic love. I'm talking about wishing people well. It's a great mental process to have, actually. I mean, people can feel it if you're wishing them well. It's not sort of blessing people or anything religious. It's simply saying in your head, thinking, I wish you well. I wish you well. It's a really good process to be in because it, it makes you feel relaxed. There's nothing going on, especially if you're in, in front of an audience of, you know, I mean, in a couple of months, I'm doing a show in Miami to 12,000 people. That's a lot. And I'll be standing there wishing them well. I want to give them some gifts. So it's not about me. It's not about looking good or being right. It's about wishing those people well and giving them whatever gifts I can give them. And it really makes conversation flow better and it makes presentations go better if you're wishing people well. I love that. And, you know, I pulled a quote from the book and it goes back to what I mentioned before about educating children and getting to the source of the problem that we experience today. And it's what a different world it would be if every child regularly had the gift of proper listening with their parent giving them eye contact, setting aside for, for a moment any activity or distraction, taking them seriously, possibly being in empathetic or active listening position. Children who are really listened to develop confidence and learn that they don't have to shout, scream, or throw tantrums, they can talk. I love that because take that and then apply it to a colleague or apply it to an employee or apply it to a customer. And I think that's a beautiful way to wrap up today's show. Yes, I think there are billions of people in this world who have never had the experience of being truly listened to, which is a shame. So I hope everybody listening to this program can you know take a little bit of this home and maybe just try and exercise when you go home tonight or if you're at home uh, truly listen to people and you might find some interesting what's happened to you what are you doing <laughs> because we're so used to not doing that it can be quite startling when we actually give somebody a hundred percent and it is so worth it and julian for people who are interested in your work want to maybe hire the sound agency or you for a keynote or just interested in learning more about how to listen better or to communicate better where can they find you and your work well there are two websites the sound agency does audio branding and it does sound in big spaces like shopping malls and airports and so forth that's the soundagency.com 
that's been going for 16 years and very successfully around the world. And my own work, which is, as you say, keynote speeches, and also we're just about to launch some really exciting online trainings. That's at juliantreasure.com. And for this show, actually, we've created a special landing page. So go to juliantreasure.com forward slash innovation, and you'll find five totally free videos, which are my five tips on developing listening skills. Ross is in there along with four other ones. So I hope you enjoy those. It's been a real pleasure, Aidan, and I hope people listening to this have got something out of it. Author of How to Be Heard, Secrets for Powerful Speaking and Listening, Julian Treasure, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Aidan. It's been a pleasure.